0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Desiring the Kingdom, a study of the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Here's Pastor Nick.
1: See, comfort can be the enemy of growth, but conversely, challenges, difficulties, hardships, they can be catalysts for growth in our lives, right? They can be things that cause you to turn to God, to seek him, to depend on him even more. And this is why James says in the book of James chapter one, count it all joy when you face various kinds of trials for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, James isn't encouraging us to have some kind of morbid obsession with pain, right? We're like, yes, bring it on. Lord, give me more. I like it when it hurts, right? No, he's saying, no, don't be obsessed with pain and like begging God to hurt you or something, right? No, he's saying is this, when you experience these things in your life, you can be glad because this, you can know with eager expectation that God is going to use this thing in your life for good to accomplish his purposes in your life. See, one of the things that we often say to you here at Whitefields, we have this kind of mantra, right? Our mantra um, among many is that we always say, if you're a member of our church, we want you to do two things. We want you to, number one, join a group, and number two, join a team. Join a group, join a team. We say that over and over. Why? Here's why. Because we sincerely believe, honestly, wholeheartedly, sincerely believe, that in order for you to grow and not drift, you need a little discomfort in your life. You need a little discomfort in your life. You need to get out of your comfort zone and join a community group. We say, oh, well, I, I don't like people. I know exactly. That's why you need to join a community group, right? You need to get together with some people, know them, let them know you, study the Bible, have them pray for you, you pray for them, use your gifts, Get involved with people. You need to discomfort yourself in order to grow. It's essential. You need to discomfort yourself and get out there and serve people. You know why? Because we follow somebody who was the greatest servant who ever lived, and we want to become like him. We follow the one who gave up the comfort of heaven in order to serve us and save us through the ultimate discomfort of the cross. See, we need these regular discomforts of giving, right? That's what all spiritual disciplines are. In a way, they're like spiritual discomforts that you bring into your life on purpose in order to grow, right? So giving, serving, uh, attending right, in order to protect us, why, from drifting into the danger zone. And that, that's the second thing we see here in Solomon's life in this chapter is that sometimes being in our comfort zone can lead us into the danger zone as we drift. So the the rest of chapter 9 tells us about Solomon's business dealings. And so we're going to kind of go through these sections in broader strokes because it's so long. But here's the deal. You can call this section from verses uh, 10 through 28 in chapter 9, you could call it Solomon's shrewd but shady business dealings. That's what this is. Solomon's shrewd and yet shady business dealings. From verses 10 through 14, we read that Solomon made a kind of a deal with Hiram, the king of Tyre, that's modern day Lebanon, so just to the north of Israel. And he made a deal with them, you might remember this from a few chapters ago, that Hiram and Tyre, they would give cedar wood and gold to help build the temple. And in return, Solomon promised to transfer to them 20 cities from Galilee, northern Israel, kind of probably a bordering area. He would transfer to them uh, from the kingdom of Israel to the kingdom of Tyre, he would give them 20 cities. So what happens here is, okay, temple's done. Hiram's like, okay, let's have those cities now. So Solomon says, yeah, perfect. I, uh, I already transferred them over to you, right? So uh, Hiram goes and he looks at these cities that Solomon gave him and he is not impressed. He's very disappointed. And he actually calls them Kabul, which means good for nothing, right? Like, these are the worst cities. These are the dumpiest towns you could have possibly given me. Now, so on the one hand, Solomon is shrewd, but he's also a little bit shady, isn't he, right? Because on the one hand, he's smart because he gave away wasteland in exchange for materials for the temple. But on the other hand, it does seem like he was a little bit dishonest in this exchange. But secondly, and here's the thing that gets me, isn't it kind of weird that Solomon's giving away the promised land, right? Like, this is the land that God had chosen to give them and said, like, this is the land that I'm going to give to you and your descendants, occupy it, you know, uh, live in it, and now Solomon is giving some of it away. It seems like the opposite of what he's supposed to be doing as a leader of God's people. Okay, the next business deal happens in verses 15 through 22 of chapter 9, where Solomon, essentially, here's what he does. There are these remaining Canaanites there in the land of Israel, and Solomon makes them become forced laborers for the Israelites. And originally, it says there, he had hired them to work in the temple uh, to build build it, and all that. But now that the project's finished, what is he going to do with them? Instead of just letting them go, he makes them into slaves. Now again, this is another example of Solomon doing something that might be shrewd from a financial perspective, but it seems quite unethical and really kind of shady, right? This is and and on top of that, this is not what God had told the people to do. God had told the people of Israel to go into the land, occupy it, drive out the Canaanites outside the borders, not to make them slaves. So again, this is a time another example of Solomon not doing what God had wanted him to do. And finally, from verses 25 through 28, we see some of the alliances that Solomon made with other nations. And again, we we contrast this with David, who was who was a warrior king. We see that Solomon is is a guy whose life is really characterized by compromise. So much compromise. Some of it's good, but then on the other hand, you have to wonder where is that line where not only is he compromising with other nations, he's also compromising in a lot of areas and crossing that line that shouldn't be crossed. And he does it essentially to increase his wealth and power, which he's already like super wealthy, super powerful, but apparently he wants more. In in 1 Kings chapter 10, from verses 1 through 13, Going on, we see the story of the queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. This is a very famous story. It says in verse 1 of chapter 10, When the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Sheba is a kingdom we know from archaeology. It's in modern-day Yemen, so right there at the tip of the Arabian Peninsula, very close to the Horn of Africa. And so she comes, and the questions that she brings, you know, it wasn't really like a a stump-the-chump kind of thing, right? She's giving him riddles to see if he can figure them out just for fun. Fun. More likely, based on the whole story here, she was coming to him with kind of diplomatic and ethical questions to see if Solomon would be a good business partner so they could make kind of a trade deal between their two. Kingdoms or two countries, and in the end, the Queen of Sheba is so impressed with Solomon, so impressed with Jerusalem that she says, "This blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness." So we're not sure really uh, what this means, right? Does this mean that the Queen of Sheba actually was converted during this trip and became a believer in the true and living God and a follower? follower of the Lord? A lot of people would say yes. It could be that she's just being polite. On the other hand, though, there, there is some evidence to say that, that actually she was converted, and, and that is because there are people who live in that region of where near, you know, the end of the Arabian Peninsula into the Horn of Africa who traditionally became Jewish, and they were not, not ethnically Jewish people who moved down there. They were local people who followed Judaism, uh, even some people there to this day, mostly in the Horn of Africa. Now, On the other hand, though, it's really important that we realize this was God's intent and desire all along. This was his design for the people of Israel, that they would be a beacon of light to the nations, that other nations would see them, and they would see the beauty of their society. At one point, God says that they would see the beauty of the law, and they would be drawn to the light of God through that. They would see this unique, beautiful society created by God, and they would be drawn to it. And as they were drawn to it, they would come to trust in and follow the Lord. And that's the same effect that Jesus says, like in Matthew chapter 5, that he wants us as his people to have, us as individuals, you as a, a family, us as a church, that we would have that salt and light effect in our communities, that our actions would draw people to the light of God's glory and cause them to trust in him and believe in him. Now, when Jesus talked to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, he brought up the Queen of Sheba. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus says to the Pharisees, the queen of the south, right? That's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Here's why. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The the Jewish people looked up to the Queen of Sheba. They admired her as a seeker of truth. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees, hey, look, if you guys admire the Queen of Sheba, then you should act like her. You should act like her because the greater than Solomon, the descendant of Solomon, the one Solomon pointed to, the Messiah, Jesus Christ is here right now, the eternal King. So give heed to his words and what he says. So Solomon, the queen of Sheba, they make this trade deal between their respective kingdoms, and what this shows us really is this. Under Solomon's leadership, Israel has now become a major world power. They started out as a nation of slaves. Look where they've come from. They spent years wandering in the wilderness without a homeland. They they lived in tents as shepherds and farmers and nomads, but now they have finally arrived on the world stage. Now they live in cities. They have palaces. They are the envy of all the world. No longer do they have to fear being attacked by their neighbors. They can finally sit back and relax. But the problem is, guys, sometimes your comfort zone. Being in your comfort zone can lead you to drift into the danger zone. And from verses 14 to 29 of chapter 10, just look at it. It talks about how rich and powerful Solomon was. Interesting verse here in chapter 14, it says, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. And I know some of you guys, like your eyes are like, 666. I know that number. That's from Revelation. That's the number of the beast. Guess what, guys? This is the only place in the Bible other than Revelation that that number is found. What does that mean? Why is it here?
0: You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., We have implemented procedures to ensure your safety as we gather for worship and studying God's Word. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30 and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message.
1: Well, if you want to know, Pastor Mike and I are going to talk about it on Tuesday in our Sermon Extra video that we do every week. So this is a shameless plug for you to watch that video because for the sake of time, we're going to move on and we're going to get really focused on the point of this chapter. But I do want to talk about that. So we're going to talk about it this week on our Sermon Extra video, so make sure to tune in for that. It comes out on Tuesday. The point of this section, really, more than anything, is this. It wants us to see how incredibly wealthy Solomon was. 666 talents of gold is about $300 million. And remember, this is Solomon's base salary. If you read the rest of the section, it tells us that was kind of his base salary, and on top of that, he had a lot of income from other streams as well, so he made a lot, a lot of money, and he had no expense, right? So it tells us also about his incredible military might after that. He had a navy. He had a huge fleet of chariots and horses. Now, why is that important? Here's why. And this is the point because in Deuteronomy 17, God had specifically said that the kings of Israel were not allowed to do three things. Three things. Number one, they were not allowed to accumulate much gold for themselves. That's literally what he's doing, right? The other thing they were not allowed to do, they were not allowed to accumulate militaries, big ones. You could have some money, and you could have some military, but you weren't supposed to just amass it. Now, Solomon here, he's building up, you know, some of the most money in the world, some of the biggest armies in the world. And this is directly in contrast to what God had said. And why had God said that? Why? Because he wanted his people to have what they needed, but still need to trust in him. Still need to trust in him for protection and security. So there was one other thing that God said not to do in Deuteronomy 17, and that is that they were not allowed to accumulate many wives. And if you know about Solomon, you know that is exactly what he did. It's almost like Solomon read Deuteronomy 17 and said, Those are some good ideas. I'm going to go do them, right? Like he said, I'm going to do all these things. And he's deliberately disobeying God's commands. And I just want you to see that this has been a drift in Solomon's life. It didn't happen overnight. This has been a drifting away from the Lord over time, a drifting into disobedience, a drifting into the danger zone. At the beginning of chapter nine, like we just saw, God warned him. He said, Solomon, watch out. All this success, all this comfort, all this ease, it poses a threat to your soul. Make sure that you don't drift. And it's like all these alarm bells are going off, right? It's like he's got 15 alarms set on his phone to wake up in the morning. And Solomon just keeps hitting the snooze button and hitting the snooze button and hitting the snooze button over and over and over. And as we're gonna see next week, he keeps hitting the snooze button until it's too late. And so the question is, what can we do? What can you and I do in order to avoid making the same mistake that Solomon made? And that brings us to our, our third and final part of this statement we made at the beginning. Sometimes being in our comfort zone can lead us into the danger zone, but by God's grace, he shows us the way into the hope zone. What these chapters tell us about Solomon is that he was incredibly successful and incredibly wealthy, and yet in spite his wealth, in spite of his success, You know what else about Solomon? He was absolutely miserable. He was miserable. How do I know that? I know that because he said so himself. You know where he said so? He wrote a book. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in your Bible. For a lot of people, when they read it for the first time, without any context, they find the book really confusing. They say, this book is really kind of pessimistic and the writer seems really jaded. Like, why is this in the Bible? There's a great reason why it's in the Bible. See, in this book, Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells the story of his search for fulfillment in this world apart from God. His search for fulfillment in the world apart from God. And here's what he says. He says, he goes through the list. He says, you know, I sought fulfillment in money and material possessions, and I accumulated more money than perhaps anybody else ever, right? Like I had more money than I could even count. And then, and he says, but you know what? It was a waste of time. It was empty. It was worthless. Uh, I thought it would fulfill me, but it didn't. Then he says, so I moved on to the next thing. You know what that was? He says, I sought fulfillment in knowledge. I, I, studied, I studied philosophy. I studied math. I studied science. I studied everything. And he says, you know what? That, that studying, that knowledge didn't fill the void that I felt in my soul. He says, so I decided I'm just going to have fun. So he, he spent all this money having all these wild parties. They would bring in, it says, exotic animals from Africa, right? Like uh, baboons and like peacocks and all kinds of interesting animals. And he would have these exotic parties and he, they, they would do all these things. And he said, you know what? Having fun didn't fill the emptiness in my soul either. He says, so I sought it in power. I sought to become the most powerful person in the world. And then I sought it through romantic relationships, but nothing I tried could ever fulfill that sense of, of unfulfilledness, that, that void that existed in my soul. And he said, you know what? At the end of the day, I had everything, and yet I was absolutely miserable. And you say, well, that is depressing. And yeah, it is. And actually, if you feel depressed after reading that book, then you got the point. Because for many people, they read that, and they're, they're like, where's the solution? Where, where's the solution to this problem? It, it only brings up a problem. It doesn't give me a solution. Again, that's the point. The, the book ends by saying, Solomon says this at the end, I guess all that really matters in life is just to serve God and to do what is right. Well, that's not a bad answer, but look at Solomon's life. He didn't even do that. He says, well, I guess this is all it amounts to, and he himself didn't even do that thing. You see, in other words, Solomon had everything this world has to offer, and yet he was miserable. How is that possible, right? We often think, if I just had that thing, if I just had that other thing, right? As soon as I get this, then I'm gonna be good. Then I'll be fine. The book of Ecclesiastes stands there as a testament to say, no, take it from a guy who literally had everything and he was still completely empty inside. Here's what Jesus said. What does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? In the Gospels, we actually read about a time when Jesus met somebody who was very similar to Solomon, and he came and talked with Jesus. This person, we call him, we don't know his name, we call him the rich young ruler, because he was all those things. He had money, he had youth, and he had power. And yet, like Solomon, he sensed that this itself was not enough. Something was missing. And here's why we know that, because he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus... I've got all this stuff, but what must I do in order to have eternal life? And I love this phrase. You can check it out. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He looked at him and he loved him and he spoke out of that love. And Jesus said, looking at him and loving him, go sell all that you have, give the money to the poor and you come and follow me. Now that's interesting because Jesus never told anybody else to do that. He did. This wasn't like a regular thing that you had to do in order to follow Jesus. So why did he tell this guy to go and sell everything he had? This guy who had so much? It seems to be a lot to ask. Why? Because Jesus looked in this guy's heart and he loved him and he could see that this, this guy's possessions and his power, those are the things that this guy was looking to and trusting in to give him comfort and security. And Jesus could see that these things that he was finding comfort in, his comfort zone, was actually a barrier between him and God. It was a barrier between him and God. And so Jesus challenged him to step out of his comfort zone, step out of his comfort zone, and put himself in a position where he would have to trust God and cling to God. But sadly, that story ends kind of like Solomon's. The man was unwilling to do that. And it says he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Guys, how do we avoid falling into the same trap that Solomon fell into, that the rich young ruler fell into, where we let our comfort zone lead us into the danger zone? Well, here's how. Jesus said this. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. See, the way out of the danger zone and into the hope zone, here it is, You need to let go of those things that you have been trusting in and clinging to, which have created a barrier between you and God. You know what those things are in your life. They're going to be different for each of us, but you know what they are. You give up, you let go of those things that you've been clinging to and trusting in that have created a barrier between you and God, and you surrender your life fully to Him, to Him who gave His life for you, putting your trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross. Guys, do you know when the Bible says, when the Bible talks about believing in Jesus in order to receive salvation, what does that mean? Does that just mean that, that we believe that he was a real person who actually lived at some point in time? Well, every, everybody believes that. I mean, Satan believes that. He's not a Christian, right? It, does it mean believing that Jesus really died on a cross, that he really rose from the grave? Those are historical facts. A lot of, a lot of historians and archaeologists don't even dispute those things. See, just believing in the existence or believing that the facts took place historically, that doesn't actually do anything for you. You know, when the Bible uses this word believe, that word, to believe in Jesus in order to receive salvation, that word believe, think about it like this. Here's what it means. To trust in, to cling to, to adhere to, right? To rely on something. So when we're talking about Jesus, what it means to believe in him in order to receive salvation, it means that you look to Jesus, you see what he did on the cross. And rather than trusting in and relying on and clinging to yourself or anyone or anything, you trust in and rely on and cling to Jesus and what he did on the cross in order to save you. Because here's here's the good news of the gospel. He, Jesus, this man, he lived the life that you and I should have lived. That life of perfect obedience to God. And he died the death that you and I should have died. On the cross, he took the judgment for your sins, right? The things that you and I deserve to receive from God. He took that, the the sins, the failures, the mistakes, the judgment that we deserve because of that. He took it upon himself as he was nailed to the cross. Why? So that you can be forgiven, so you can be embraced by God, so you can be brought into God's family and given the gift of eternal life in the life to come, but also to receive relationship with God here and now. And so right now we're going to take communion. And as we do that, this is our way of expressing that we believe this, right? We trust in, we rely on, we cling to what Jesus did for us. It's our way of of saying we receive this gift of God's grace and we receive it by faith. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body broken for us as we hold this bread together, Lord. We, we remember that you have called us together in one body. It's so good to be together again uh, physically as well as being connected with those online. Lord, thank you though. We remember right now that your body was broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins were nailed to the cross with you. So Lord, as we take this, your body broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins, it's our way of saying, yes, Lord, we believe in, we rely on, we cling to what you did for us. We couldn't take care of our problem of sin. Only you could do that. And you did it. And we're so thankful. So we take this as our way of saying, yes, Lord, we receive it and we believe it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. So good to see your faces and be with you again.